Uh, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be reading from, Je- uh, from Zechariah chapter 3, which was part of the inspiration for that song. Let's now listen intently to the Word of God. This is uh, Joshua chapter, th- or I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 3, talking about Joshua. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word, the stunning precision of it, uh, the beauty of the mosaic, the tapestry of salvation that you are painting for us in these visions and in the stories and uh, in the life of your people Israel, in the Old Testament, preparing the way, making known your manifold wisdom to the world and making known uh, your plan of salvation, making known the Messiah, who he would be and what he would do in just the most startling ways, Lord. Only you as God have the power to to, to call out uh, the end from the beginning, to lay out in detail what you will do in the future, Lord. We thank you for laying these things out for us and then coming through on these promises so that we might know that you are God. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, the purpose of, of your purposes in creation, your purposes in the church, your purposes for us, the big picture of that, um, so that we might know that you are God, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate our minds so that we might understand your word. Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word, uh, and we entrust that you will beautify us, your afflicted ones. You will grow us and strengthen us through the hearing of your word and the hearing of you speaking to us through it, Lord. We praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So please be seated. You know, some of the, the, big, the biggest existential questions in life, the questions of meaning, the questions of uh, you know, what is the meaning of life, what, why does anything exist at all? These are questions that have like captivated us as, as, as a people, captivated us as human beings since the beginning of time and still do to this day. And some people feel like these questions might uh, be unanswerable. Some people feel maybe these questions just aren't answered yet, but they're always questions at the very founda- foundational level of existence. Why, why does anything exist at all? What is the meaning of life? And if we're a Christian, then there's a Christian version of that, which is really more along the lines of what the heck is God doing? Why, why did God create the world? Uh, and what is his purpose in creating the world, and especially what is his purpose for the church? Uh, as American Christians, in the, our cultural bubble of individualism and um, really self-absorption, a lot of times we answer that question by saying, well, God did all that to save me, or to save us. We are like the centerpiece of the whole thing. But that's not really true. The Bible says that we're a part of that plan, but we are a part of a much bigger story that's going on in, uh, in, the, in the universe, the seen world and the unseen world. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives this veiled reference to just that. This is, I'm going to read this verse to you, but as I read it, this, has been, this verse has been... Uh, to me, like one of the most, one of the most perplexing and, and fascinating verses in the whole Bible because of, uh, of, of the, the magnitude of what Paul is saying, if you listen closely. In, in, verse, uh, in, in, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul, who's been called to be an apostle, uh, gives a veiled answer to what God's purpose is in the church. And he says this, it's in order, his, his role as an apostle is in order to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, which is God's plan, of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, why is that fascinating? Because he's, he's saying really that the church is serving this purpose in not um, communicating to the world God's wisdom, but he, the church is serving some purpose whereby God is communicating or showing or putting on display to the, hierarchy, or the hierarchies of angelic beings, the divine council, all of these heavenly realities and heavenly beings we've been talking about so much lately, God is using the church to show them, both the faithful ones and the rebellious ones, that his manifold wisdom, manifold means uh, many and various interlocking, that his wisdom, that his power, his, his knowledge is, is surpassing all others. Uh, that what he is doing uh, is going to put on display how, just how wise and perfect and amazing God is. 
And so that like that cracks open like the, the veil behind reality to show us a little bit of that huge picture. And yet it's, and so I've spent, I've spent so much time pondering that question, like, what is that? What does that mean? Like, how is the church showing God's wisdom? And this week, as I studied this passage, there was like this crazy breakthrough where I, ca- I came to the understanding that this passage, maybe nowhere else in the Bible, uh, in this, you know, is this nearly impenetrable idea about God operating in the eternal spiritual realms to prove his wisdom to divine beings. Maybe nowhere else in the Bible is that idea presented with more clarity than in this very short vision given in Zechariah 3. And when we understand what Zechariah 3 is saying, it kind of serves as like a key puzzle piece that makes all these other parts of the Bible make sense and shows us that the whole story of the Bible, the main story of the Bible, is what God is using to show his wisdom, his manifold wisdom to the spiritual realm. And so how is it? How does God display his surpassing wisdom through the church? And the short answer is that he is displaying that, his wisdom, by defeating the power of evil by the power of sacrificial love. He's putting on display that the power of love is the strongest power. It's more powerful than evil. It's more powerful than pride. It's more powerful than everything. In fact, it's even stronger than death. And so the big idea of this passage is, that, is, is how Jesus defeats Satan through the power of sacrificial love. That's the story that's being told in this vision. So let's look at that. Let's look at that big idea and let's put it, break it down one little part at a time. First, let's look at the, let's look at the, the rivalry between Jesus and Satan that's happening in this passage. The scene, the scene we just read is being played out in a courtroom. Uh, not a, not a, a courtroom like our courtroom, but a courtroom that used to exist in the ancient world, was, which was the throne room of the king. And so this vision is, is being shown to us in the celestial, heavenly court of God. It's a trial before the divine council, and the main players are the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, and the angel of the Lord, who the Lord speaks to, and we know from all other passages in the Bible that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and he is in this passage as, he's in this vision as the judge. Satan is in the passage as the prosecuting attorney, and then there's poor Joshua the high priest as the defendant. And when you when you, when you list out the players in the vision, it may seem like kind of a simple, uh, a simple, it's not it's a simple thing of just Joshua the high priest being brought to trial, uh, but it's deeper than that. It may seem like that, but the real battle going on in this vision is the battle between Satan and Jesus. Uh, the poor high priest is a part of it, but it's much deeper than that. At, at the deeper level, if you were an ancient Israelite reading this passage, you would be utterly shocked 
And not just shocked at the fact that the priest is dressed in filthy rags, but more so that the priest is dressed in filthy rags in God's courtroom, in the presence of God. That would have been utterly unacceptable. There are just layers and layers of detail. That representing like the righteousness that the priest, that, that mankind must possess in order to stand in front of God. And yet here he is, this pre, the priest of God, his servant standing in God's presence in the holy sanctuary temple of God, dressed in the filthy rags of sin. And that is a big problem. It's not just a big problem for Joshua uh, it's ostensibly a big problem for Jesus. Why? Because this isn't just an attempt of Satan accusing the people of God who the high priest represents for being sinful, but it's a checkmate move by Satan against Jesus. How? Satan would say, Satan says in this, we can extrapolate from the response that Jesus gives. Satan is saying or presenting to the court, I seem to remember another Adam. I seem to remember the first Adam whose role was to protect the garden of God, to keep God's laws, and to keep evil and sin from entering into the holy temple sanctuary garden of God. That was the whole story of Genesis 3. The first Adam was to guard to keep God's ways by protecting God's sanctuary by not allowing evil to enter into the sanctuary. Adam failed at that. He was judged. He was exiled for breaking the requirements of the covenant of works that God had given him. And Satan is looking at Jesus and saying, you're doing the same thing. You have allowed this Sinner, you have allowed this dirty, filthy high priest to come in and enter into the sanctuary temple of God. Therefore, you have broken the covenant of works in the same way the first Adam did. You're disqualified. You can't be the Messiah. You're guilty of the same crime. Checkmate. I win before the game even gets off the ground. And he has a point. That's the bummer. <laughs> Satan means the accuser in Hebrew, and he's accusing God. He's saying, uh, he's saying, your people uh, have, have broken your own law and your own covenant stipulations, your own penalties you have given them for that law requires that they be judged. It requires that they be sent into the fire of judgment. And by you allowing these, this filthy priest, this talking monkey, to come into your presence, you've violated, you've, you've, already, you've already disqualified yourself as being the second Adam. Actually, his accusations, just based on the law and the requirements of the law, of the covenant of works are correct. And that's why it's a problem. God's reputation 
uh, not just our salvation, but God's whole reputation is hanging in the balance here in this court scene. And so what is the response? What does the angel of the Lord say in response to this? He says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. In other words, he's saying, you're wrong, Satan. Not today, Satan. You're wrong. And he says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Talking about Joshua. Meaning, not a cattle brand, but a, a, a smoldering log that's been pulled out of the raging fire and is still smoking. He's saying, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, he's saying, yeah, this one was in for the fire of judgment, and rightly so, based on the requirements of the law. And yet, I have still managed to pluck him out of the fire and bring him into our presence. And the rest of the whole vision is the explanation or the, the, the exactly how it was that Jesus managed to do that, to pluck the people of God represented by Joshua out of the fire. And so the first thing it says is that Jesus takes our sin upon himself. In, in the theme song, Let All Mortal Flesh Be Silent, in the second verse again, there's this, this line that says, Lord of Lord in human vesture, as of old on earth he stood. And that line of, of, of the Lord of Lords being in human vesture is surrounded by so many like majestic terms of the God of heaven descending from the realms of endless day and hosts of angels being his vanguard. And you, I mean, it gives us this astonishing picture of like all the power and glory of heaven bringing the Lord Jesus to the point of conception, really, in the womb of Mary. Uh, and what the, what the reality of what that was behind the scenes. And the, the language is so lofty and so majestic and so divine uh, that it's easy to miss what it is the hymn is saying when it says that the Lord of Lords will be dressed in human vesture. It sounds so fancy. It almost sounds like Jesus in a, in a body, in human form. But when I picture it, I picture Jesus descending and him being in rope, you know, in the, in the flowing priestly robes or the, the highest level, the finest ceremonial clerical vestments, as you will. And yet that's not really what, what that means. Because the angel of the Lord says it means to be, uh, it means something very specific. He says to Joshua, he says, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And even maybe more startling, he says, and I will take away your iniquity in a single day. And then the angel of the Lord orders that all these filthy rags be taken off of Joshua. And where do they go? Uh, see, human vesture is what Joshua is wearing. To be dressed in human vesture means to be dressed and to be covered in the filthiest rags of our sin. That's what it means. 
And so for the Lord of Lords, for Jesus to be in human vesture means that Jesus took off the spotless vestments of divinity, all of those flowing priestly robes that we think about, which represent, represent his perfect righteousness and, and put on, and his divinity, and he put on the filthy garments of our sin. And then he went to the cross to put to death those sin forever, to completely remove them from us. Listen to what the New Testament says. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For our sake, Jesus was made sin. It says, For our sake, he, was, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8, that for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And Galatians says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The theological term for that is something we call the passive obedience of Christ. Not passive as in passive-aggressive or dormant or... It means passive from the, the word pascal, which means suffering. It means the suffering of Jesus. Not just his suffering on the cross, but the suffering he underwent from, the, from his conception in the womb of Mary, suffering every human indignity, every human trial, every human temptation against sin, uh, and bearing upon himself the filth of the sin of all of his people. And then taking that to the cross. And, and the, key, the, the, the key thing to understand here is that in the vision, conceptually, is it how much of, how much, is, is, jo, is, is Joshua just, is it just his shirt and his socks that are taken, or what's the picture? The picture is that all of his filthy rags are taken off of him, which means that what Jesus did on the cross for us, and what Jesus did by bearing our sin for us, was he removed all of it, all of it. Not part of it. Not just the sin up to the point when you become a Christian, then you got to keep like working it off as you go along, but all of it from beginning to end. And that's, that's important because I guarantee you, if you're truly in Christ, there's some sin that you're wrestling with that really bothers you. If you're not really in Christ... <laughs> Uh, you're not, probably not worried about it too much. You know, people come to me all the time, you know, come to pastors all the time, and they're like, I'm afraid that I'm not saved because of this sin. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that. But first, you know, the first thing is the fact that you are distraught over it is really good evidence that you belong to Jesus. Uh, you know, and that, that's how the devil operates, right? He he, know, he knows us. The devil, Satan is a supernatural intelligence that has been studying mankind uh, for the intent purpose of destroying us 
for the intent purpose of proving God to be a failure and a liar. He's been studying us for millennia to know how we tick. He knows how we tick. He knows what our temptations, what our weaknesses are. And the satanic attack is to lay the temptation out, lay the trap, and then when you step in it, to come around on the backside and say, come on now. Again? Really? Uh, I don't think a real Christian would be caught up in that again, do you? Maybe you don't really belong to Jesus at all. So we become discouraged, so our heart convicts us. Uh, and in that sense of conviction and isolation and harm, it makes it more prevalent, more likely for us to commit sin against other people in that despair. And so it's so important to understand that double-sided attack and to see that in the vision, all of Joshua's iniquity was removed. All of the people of God's iniquity was removed. Not some, not part, but all. So that the great hymn, Is Well With My Soul, can say, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's true for us. That's what Jesus has done. But that's not the only thing Jesus has done for us. If all Jesus did was remove all our sin, we'd be in a neutral spot. But also, what's required for salvation is to possess righteousness. It's not just not doing bad stuff. There's also an element where we're responsible to do good stuff, to have a positive righteousness. Uh, and so Jesus does more than just take our sin upon himself. He takes our sin and then he gives us something in return. And that something is the second, uh, is the second thing Jesus does for us, which Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness. Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness. And this is where the vision gets a little bit weird. Uh, it's not weird for a vision, but it gets a little bit weird because as we read these stories, because they're so detailed, we automatically kind of uh, rely on our, on our rationalist uh, training as 21st century Americans, and we kind of assume that this is a historical event or like a documentary or that somehow we're being privy to a, a, a scene of a historical scene through clairvoyance or remote viewing or some sort of like power like that. And yet it's not. It's not a historical event. It's a vision. And in particular, it's called a night vision. These are a series of night visions that Zechariah ha are having. So what does that mean? It's a dream. And dreams do not follow the, uh, the physical laws of, of the universe. They don't follow the laws of physics. Dreams go all over the place. As your mind like sorts out your day or your week or whatever dreams are, you'll be in the dream, you'll be in a car, and you'll be having a conversation with your best friend, and then your best friend turns into your third grade teacher, uh, and then the car turns into a whale, and you're flying across the universe. Uh, on a whale, and, and none of this trips you out in the dream. In, in your dream, you're not going like, what's happening to me? It's totally normal because the dream is 
It's a vision. It's a dream. Things shift around in weird ways that don't fit with the physical laws of reality that we know. And that's where we make the biggest mistakes in interpreting Bible prophecy. We assume that they will follow the rules of physics and we try to interpret it according to that, but they don't. Let me give you one, one example. In this vision itself, Jesus, or the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, says that he will send his servant who is the branch. And if you follow that terminology, you see that the branch is the name that's given to the Messiah in, in relationship to his being a royal king in the line of David. The branch of David, the, the root of Jesse, the branch of David, all this language about how the Messiah will be a descendant from the line of David and therefore the rightful king and royal ruler of Israel. And it's the, he's the same person. Jesus is saying, I am going to send myself, talking about himself in the third person as someone else. Uh, and the same thing happens with the high priest in this vision. The vision, the point is that the vision uses complex imagery that shifts in order to teach us theological truth. And so what happens here? What did the high priest do for Israel? The high priest, uh, high priest, it represented, high priest represented the people to God, but also the high priest represents God to the people. Uh, and the first clue hiding in plain sight is the name of this priest. It's almost unheard of in a night vision, particularly for the characters outside of, of you know, the angel of the Lord to be given a specific name. And yet the name given to the priest here is Joshua. And Joshua is an English transliteration of the Jewish name uh, Yehoshua or contracted to Yeshua. And if you translate Yeshua from directly from Hebrew into Greek, you get the, the Greek word Iesus, which then if you translate Iesus into English, you get the word Jesus. And so this is Jesus, the high priest, standing in front of Satan in the royal court. And how does Jesus represent God to his people? Or how does he represent us to God? This Jesus, the high priest, is given two commands and two rewards. Verse 7, Jesus, the high priest, is solemnly assured that if he walks in God's ways and keeps God's charge, that word is keep or guards the same word that's given to Adam in the, co in the, in the garden to guard the garden of, 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 of the Lord. If he does those things, if he perfectly obeys God's laws, and if he protects against the intrusion of evil, the exact same requirements that the first Adam was given in the covenant of works, that he will receive two rewards, that he will rule God's house and he will have charge of God's courts. He will be the judge over all of God's courts. And here's the kicker, not just for himself, but verse 8, for you and your friends who sit before you. It's a picture of this high priest Jesus representing 
a whole group of people. And what is it that Jesus accomplishes? Jesus, the high priest, accomplishes perfect righteousness. He was without sin. He perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of God's law, and then he gives that positional righteousness to his people as a gift. Even though we're not righteous, he gives it to us as a cloak to put on. The idea of God clothing his people in righteousness is one of the most beautiful and main themes of scripture that starts at the very beginning. Adam and Eve put on fig leaves. They try to cover themselves in their own works. God takes a sacrificial animal, slaughters it in front of them, and then takes the skin of that animal and covers them in it to at the very gate to prove to them, to show them that their sin would be covered by the death of another and then they would be clothed with the righteousness of that sacrificial victim. And then it just builds from there. God, every time God speaks about his people in the terms of beauty and of perfection and of righteousness, it's always in the, in the context of God having given his people beauty and righteousness and perfection as a gift by clothing them by clothing them in his righteousness. And that's what Jesus does for us. And so what does the angel of the Lord do in the vision? He not only commands that the filthy garments of human vesture be taken off, but he commands that the pure garments of the perfect high priest, of the image of Christ himself, be put upon Joshua. And so he's clothed in perfect righteousness. His sin taken away and perfect righteousness given in replace of that. So I, why, is there, why is there this flip of the high priest between representative of the people of God and representative of Jesus and what he does for us? It's to give us, it's to impress upon us uh, the meaning of our union in Christ. We are so identified with Jesus uh, that we lay claim to what he's done as our very own to where it becomes almost indistinguishable and it's a picture, one commentator says it's a picture of God's people being invested with the very glory and image of Christ their Savior who is the Lord. But that's not all Jesus does. There's more in this vision. The third thing Jesus does is he seals and sets apart for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse, verse 9. It says, Behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord. What's the stone? The word, that word for stone can mean a couple of things. It can mean a, a, a measurement stone of weighing. It can mean a precious stone, like a gemstone. Uh, and by, by proximity to that idea, it's also, used to, uh, it's also used to describe a diadem or, a, or the front part of a crown uh, that's shaped out of a precious metal. It could be any of those things. And so knowing that, it's not hard to understand what this stone is. In the vision, 
there's a separation made between the investure of the robes of righteousness that the perfect and pure vestments of the high priest are put on Joshua signifying his righteousness, but the turban is, is mentioned separately. And we know from Exodus and other parts in the Bible that on the front of the turban of the high priest was what? Seminary students. There was, it's called a plaque, but really it means a blossom. It's a word that means a flower blossom. It's a, made of pure gold, and a, 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 a flower blossom in, made out of pure gold on the front of the turban of the helmet and on that flower, on that stone, there's an inscription. And the inscription says, holy to the Lord. Meaning it's set apart. This is Josh, this is the Lord saying in this, in this beautiful vision that that, that stone will be put on our foreheads and the inscription on that stone will be holy to the Lord. We'll be set apart, sealed. The New Testament uses the word of sealing, meaning that we are set apart as God's possession, set apart for his purposes. And how are we done? How, how has that happened? The stone has seven eyes. I know this is getting trippy and dreamlike here, but stick with me. The seven eyes always described in other visions as the Holy Spirit of God, especially in Revelation. And so it says in Revelation that the seal of God will be upon their foreheads. And on that seal of God, the seal of God will be the name of God upon their foreheads. Second Corinthians says that it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Ephesians, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee means, it, means a, it literally means down payment. It's a financial term. It means that God has put the down payment in us of his spirit as a promissory note that he will continue until that is fully paid and we have been fully invested with the Spirit in resurrection power by his promise and by his oath. So it cannot, it cannot be broken. It's a stunning picture of the utter security of God's people. The sealing of God with his Holy Spirit upon us taking away the filth of our sin, replacing it with his, the righteousness of Jesus, and then putting the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us as a promise of our guarantee means that even in the storm of this world, we have total and complete safety in Christ and in God. How do we know that? The very last thing mentioned in, this, in, this, in the vision says that, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's how the vision ends, which is language that's borrowed. Uh, it's borrowed from First Chronicles where talking about Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. 
The kingdom of Solomon was a picture, again, of God's perfect kingdom, of God's people living in perfect peace and security. It's a picture of the new creation. And so God, I, that was a lot. This vision is so dense that picking out all the, and I even, I hit the highlights of it. We could go several layers deeper, but it was so dense. Uh, let me recap it. It's a courtroom trial vision where the angel of the Lord answers the challenge from Satan, and the challenge from Satan is how can you let this sinful people stand in your presence? And the answer that the angel of the Lord gives is that in the future, a high priest named Yeshua, or Jesus, who is the angel of the Lord, the divine son of God, the royal king in the line of David, will divest himself of divine splendor and take upon himself the filthy rags of human sin. He will also perfectly keep God's law and God's charge by crushing the head of the serpent and then give to sinful man his perfect righteousness to wear as a cloak and then sealing them with his Holy Spirit, allowing them to stand in God's presence as his own special possession and keeping them safe through this world. That's what it's saying. That's the answer to Satan's charge. How can you allow this sinful person in God's court? And Jesus says, not today, Satan, because I have made him righteous. Jesus has made us righteous and given us the right to stand before his throne. And I think... To me, the most, the craziest part about this vision is it's just one. This is one vision in one chapter, in one book of the Bible. And this vision, if you pair, you can put it side by side with so, more parts, of the, with hundreds of other passages, side by side with Genesis 3, side by side with Genesis 22, with Isaiah 6, with Isaiah 53, with Daniel 4, with Daniel 7, with Daniel 9, with the visions of Revelation, all throughout the book. And so it gives us, it gives us a sense of what the Bible is. And you know what the Bible is? I'll end with this. Have you ever seen one of those, those pictures where the artist takes a bunch of little tiny pictures and puts them together in a collage. And as you step back, all those little tiny pictures like form into a big picture. There's a famous uh, Salvador Dali picture where you stand back and it's Abraham Lincoln. Well, in the same way, God is giving us all these little tiny pictures and these little visions and he's just peppering the Bible, peppering the Old Testament with these little visions talking about Jesus and what he would do uh, and, and making a huge, like a mosaic out of them in the Old Testament so that when we stand back, start stepping back, and you understand how to interpret it, all those little pictures come together and form this picture of Christ. And then the New Testament is talking about Jesus, what he did, what he came, and then the letters are, what does that all mean? And that's the big picture of the Bible, so that we can know, so that we can know what it is that Jesus did. So when Satan comes and tempts you that that besetting sin is the reason why you're going to be qualified from heaven, you can say, you know what, I got a, a thousand visions that form this picture of Jesus, and every single one of them says, 
that my sin has been completely removed and it has been put on Jesus and that he's taken the sins to death, to the cross. And he's provided me with his perfect righteousness. He's sealed me with his spirit. And you know what? Not today, Satan. Not today. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the depth and the beauty of your word and what it is that you tell us. We thank you, Lord, for understanding that we are a stubborn and stiff-necked people and that uh, the deep desire of our hearts is to earn our, f- earn our own merit and to stand before you somehow having contributed to our own salvation. But you've constructed the entire Bible to show us it's the utter foolishness of that idea. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be impressed upon that. And that this coming week, in the coming months, in the coming years, whenever Satan comes to us and says, you're not a real Christian, uh, we can respond by saying, you're right. By the requirements of the law, I am disqualified. But because of what Jesus has done for me, uh, I am safe. And I'll continue to be safe. And I pray, Lord, that that safety would give us peace in this Advent season. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.